From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. I'm Billy Joel. Did you know the United States and China have each crushed more than six tons of ivory? These fragments are all that remain of countless elephants. Recent numbers from the international watchdog group Global Financial Integrity show that the illegal wildlife trade is now worth up to $20 billion a year. That's way more than weapons trafficking and approaching the rates of human smuggling. Bob Dreyer of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says ivory is a source of funding for terrorist groups. Now it's really heavily organized, heavily armed, and we need to bring all the tools of sophisticated international law enforcement to bear on that. We're working closely with the highest levels of the State Department and of the National Security Council staff, and we're talking with Congress about expanding our law enforcement authorities. I mean, this is serious crime. What started as an environmental and conservation problem has turned into a full-blown national security issue. With any transnational organized crime issue, whether it's drugs or people or wildlife trafficking, no single intervention is going to solve the problem. There's no silver bullet. Gretchen Peters is executive director of the Satow Project, which tracks illicit organizations through their finances. The U.S. government and allied nations that are going after an organization like Boko Haram or Al-Shabaab or Hezbollah should go after their financial system and the machine, essentially, and the networks that keep them afloat, as opposed to targeting specific products that they move. That's the strategy the U.S. government has taken since September 11th, weakening al-Qaeda and their affiliates by choking off their money supply. Peter says the government needs to do the same to the bad actors financing the illegal wildlife trade. We see a lot of activity to try and catch poachers in the parks, and we see a little bit of activity around seizing containers of ivory and seizing uh, rhino horn from couriers who are bringing it on flights from Africa to Asia. That will create a disruption for the networks, uh, but by that time the animals are already dead. So we'd like to try and find a way to proactively get ahead of the problem and shut it down before the animals die. It's undeniable. The impact on elephants and other iconic species has been dramatic and terrible. But the damage of the illegal wildlife trade goes far beyond that. Varun Vera is the lead analyst with C4ADS, the Center for Advanced Defense Studies. This is a very urgent, it is an issue that's happening right now. It's happening at a scale that has sort of conservation impacts, but it's also happening and operating at a scale where we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars being laundered through the international systems of finance and transportation to reach some of the most organized and nefarious sort of criminal groups that are out there. So how did we get to this point? The poaching problem is not new. For centuries, hunters have been killing elephants for ivory, and demand for ivory products has come and gone. For years, ivory was considered very fashionable in the West, according to this 1946 newsreel. In this London warehouse, where tusks have been coming in since the days of Charles II, the latest consignments are cut up for the first stage of their transformation into ivory-backed brushes, mirrors, and combs. But at the same time, a group of concerned environmentalists and scientists was worried about the impact on wildlife. And so in 1948, they formed what's now known as the International Union for Conservation of Nature, or IUCN. They started a list of threatened species and helped develop the World Wildlife Fund. 
by 1970, the language of conservation had reached the White House. This from Richard Nixon's 1970 State of the Union Address. Through our years of past carelessness, we incurred a debt to nature, and now that debt is being called. Then, in 1973, a big step forward. The IUCN came up with CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. CITES created rules for the trafficking of thousands of animals and plant species. Over the next 15 years, CITES saw huge declines in elephant populations in Africa. And so in 1989, they, along with 115 member nations, banned the international trade of ivory. And for a while, it worked. Kenya's former director of wildlife services, Richard Leakey, addressed the National Press Club in 1991. The price of ivory has dropped in terms of the poacher profits from $50 to $60 as it was at the end of 1988 to less than $3 today per kilo. Not only did the price fall, but the poachers stopped killing elephants. But then there came a surge in demand. Terrorism expert Gretchen Peter says that happened around eight years ago. There were a number of announcements in China and Vietnam that Consuming rhino horn helped to cure cancer. It became fashionable to consume rhino horn powder in your whiskey under the belief that it would cure hangovers. So it's become sort of a luxury uh, status symbol to be seen using rhino horn. And as a result of that, uh, demand has gone through the roof very, very suddenly. Ivory became popular again, too. Some argue that a one-time legal sale of ivory to China approved by CITES in 2008 kicked off the new trend. And since then, the value of illegal wildlife parts has skyrocketed. These goods now sell for prices at the retail level that rival cocaine uh, and gold and platinum. High prices and lax enforcement have attracted the interest of African militias and terrorist organizations like al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, and Joseph Kony and his Lord's Resistance Army. The Enough Project's Holly Dranginis says the LRA has been especially active in the illegal ivory trade. Coney is actually ordering his fighters to poach elephants and um, in some cases collaborating with other armed groups in the region to oil the machine that stretches across the region and makes many people many millions of dollars. The Obama administration has sent special forces to Central Africa to hunt down Joseph Kony, though so far he remains at large. Meanwhile, conservation groups are once again noting dramatic declines in elephant and rhino populations. They face a very real possibility of going extinct soon. And that's something Washington lawmakers like Republican Congressman Ed Royce of California want to change. If we want a world still blessed with these magnificent species, we need creative action. We need very aggressive action. We need to work with source and transit and demand to confront the challenge. It's a multinational, multi-pronged effort which requires an unprecedented amount of coordination and cooperation. We begin in the heart of Africa. Uganda sits in the center of Africa and is bordered by some of the continent's most important game reserves. Its own animal population is relatively small, so it's not a main target for poachers, but it is a major transit way for the illegal wildlife trade. The Ugandan government has made efforts to control the trade crossing its borders, 
But it's been slow going because a lot of the government is corrupt, including the country's wildlife agency. Reporter Halima Athumani has more. In November 2014, five officials of the Uganda Wildlife Authority were suspended after almost one and a half tons of ivory, worth more than a million U.S. dollars, vanished from a government storeroom. In response, the Minister for Tourism suspended the executive director of the Uganda Wildlife Authority, Andrew Seguia. But he returned to office just a few months later. Interpol was brought in to investigate. This to me is something that involves corruption within the different agencies that are supposed to handle ivory. Asan Kasinje is Interpol's international relations director. He says these kinds of incidents wouldn't be possible without collaboration along many points of the supply chain. A case in point is the ivory that was intercepted in Doha. The person who was operating the scanner claims that by the time the disconsignment of ivory passed through the scanner, he had, for whatever reason, left. You, you, you understand yes. uh, how peculiar and how convenient that can be. But Kasinja says the people helping the traffickers may not be aware of the true damage being done. They do not know that the proceeds of ivory can go into arms trade can go into terrorism activities, can go into making sure that the, the, the conflicts within our regions don't end. Uganda has long been plagued by the Lord's Resistance Army. The group is known for its vicious attacks on the Ugandan people. LRA leader Joseph Kony was indicted for war crimes in 2005, but has evaded capture despite U.S. special forces and others looking for him. He's now reportedly living in hiding in the Central African Republic. But there is strong evidence that he and his army are supporting themselves in large part by the illegal wildlife trade. We got reports from people coming out from the group that late last year that Joseph Kony got up to a shipment of between 30 to 40 tusks. Enough project field researcher Kasper Aga says the LRA has been cashing in on ivory for a while now. By some estimates, the LRA is earning 40,000 US dollars for every elephant they kill. And they are killing a lot. Last spring, nearly 70 elephants were slaughtered in Garamba National Park in just two months. Aga says the LRA transports the ivory from the Democratic Republic of the Congo through Uganda to South Dafu, where they sell it or trade it for bullets, medical supplies and satellite phones. Obviously, LRA does not have their own transnational network to get the ivory out of Central Africa. So they sell it to other ivory traders, wealthy businessmen. Some of them might be connected to local government officials. Some of them could be connected to the army. And then it shifts off to Asia, which is where 90% of the raw ivory goes. The Uganda Wildlife Authority employs about 1,300 rangers and other staff to help control this trade. Recently reinstated executive director Andrew Seguia admits there may be some former LRA fighters in their ranks, but he denies they are helping the ivory trade thrive within Uganda. When we recruit people, uh, we do background checks. I'm only aware about two or three officers that used to be in the LRA. Uh, it is also a logistical nightmare for anybody to transport uh, one or two tasks all that way, when you could get tasks in Central African Republic itself, 
It doesn't sound to be a credible story. However, there is little doubt that the LRA is managing to thrive off the ivory trade, despite the work of the Uganda Wildlife Authority. The NAF project's Kasper Iger says other groups are getting in on the action too. Since the prices have gone up considerably over the last couple of years, um, we've seen armed groups, not just the LRA, but also Al-Shabaab, um, the Janjaweed from Sudan, the Seleka rebels in Central African Republic. We also heard reports of Boko Haram from Nigeria, all trying to get into this very lucrative trade. This is a huge expansion of an already devastating trade, all running through Uganda's fractious borders. In turn, Ugandan authorities will have to deal with not only these external forces, but also their own officials who may be taking advantage of widespread high-level corruption to make a killing from the ivory trade. For America Abroad, I am Halima Atmani in Kampala, Uganda. Government and conservation groups agree that poaching is a threat not only to the animals in Africa's national parks, but to the people who live near those parks. And as more terrorist and other criminal groups get into the poaching game, the more widespread the problem becomes. Last year, Academy Award-winning director Catherine Bigelow made a short animated film to illustrate the growing connection between poaching and terrorism. One of her key advisors was Juan Zarati. He was Deputy National Security Advisor for Combating Terrorism in the second Bush administration. And now he's chairman and co-founder of the Financial Integrity Network. He joins us now to talk about the threat poaching poses to our national security. Let's talk about the scope of this problem. We have the poaching of the animals, the elephants and, and rhinos in Africa, and then they're sold, or parts of them are sold, their tusks and their horns, mainly to China and other parts of Asia. How many animals are being killed? What are they being killed for exactly? And how much is this trade worth? What you have is an acceleration of the poaching crisis, which is not necessarily new, but has been accelerated given rising demand, given the industrialization of the poaching process, and the use of the poaching trade by all sorts of groups to include organized crime, militant groups, and terrorist organizations for profit. Um, this has been an accelerating problem, in part because you do have rising demand in places like China and Vietnam, and still demand in places like North America. But you also have the reality that groups have purposely entered this trade because it is so profitable, because the opportunities are there before them, and it's a trade that is fueling conflict and aiding a number of groups that present a security risk to the region and perhaps even to the rest of the world. Let's talk about that angle of it, because you are saying that this is actually fueling security problems because it's encouraging groups, uh, militant groups or terrorist groups or organized crime groups, to get involved in these nefarious activities because it is so profitable and, I suppose, not as we can see by the result, not very well enforced any of these anti-poaching laws. That's right. I, I think what you have is the attractive nuisance of a trade that presents real profit, low barriers to entry, rewards those who are willing to flout the law, and certainly rewards those who are willing to outgun or outspend 
government forces or security around these natural resources. Uh, from the U.S. perspective, it's incredibly dangerous and damaging in that it not only foments regional instability, but it gives uh, life and resources to groups that the U.S. knows to be problematic and dangerous. Uh, the Janjaweed militia in the Sudan, for example, which has taken advantage of the ivory trade. The Lord's Resistance Army, led by Joseph Kony, uh, wanted by Uganda, East African countries, uh, and the U.S., and hunted now for all of his human rights abuses, is now fully engaged in the ivory trade. And even groups like al-Shabaab, the al-Qaeda affiliate in Somalia, uh, has engaged in the ivory trade as part of its portfolio to add money to its coffers and, and to its budget. Is there a worry, though, on your part and other experts' parts, that if this is successful, that you can crack down on this to a significant degree and cut off the funding for these groups, that they will turn to something else that is equally bad to fund their activities? Well, there's no question that groups like al-Shabaab or the Lord's Resistance Army or, or different militia groups throughout Africa have found ways to profit from the local economy or the territories they control, uh, running off in war economies to tax local populations or to take advantage of the resources in the territory they control. And so I think a, a major challenge here is that there's no question that you have to stop the ability of, of terrorist or militant groups from profiting from poaching, but you also then have to deal with the reality that they have other means of raising funds, often kidnapping for ransom getting engaged in extortion and taxation, engaging in the mining interests, running ports or even trade-based money laundering operations as we've seen with al-Shabaab. And so there's no question that these groups adapt to the pressure that they're under. I think that the reality here, though, is that we have a very clear convergence of the real need to ensure that terrorist groups and militant groups at least don't have access to profits from poaching which certainly gives them budget flexibility to be a threat in the localities in which they operate or the region or even globally. But also, you have to deal with the fact that this is a trade that is really putting at risk some important species and is accelerating the environmental crisis when we talk about potential extinction. And so there's no question that these groups will adapt and have adapted in the past, but it does suggest that we need a, a more aggressive strategy getting at the finances of these groups, whether it's poaching in the first instance or other types of illicit or even very dangerous activities that they engage in to survive and to perpetuate their groups and their agendas. That's the constant struggle for those who are involved in the mission of dealing with transnational organized crime, terrorist groups, militant groups. You constantly have to pressure deny them resources, and ultimately try to constrict their global reach. And if you can do that by taking away sources of funding, and if you can do that in this case by preventing them from profiting from poaching and also saving a species, then I think you've done something important and strategically relevant. Juan Zarate, Senior Advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Poaching and Terrorism, the race to protect wildlife and national security on America Abroad. When we come back, a look at what's being done to curb demand for ivory and other wildlife products. The Chinese government has announced that it will phase out its role in the ivory trade. 
This is the news we've been waiting for. This is, I think, the really big solution. Let us know your thoughts about this program. Tweet us at America underscore abroad. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Poaching and Terrorism, the Race to Protect Wildlife and National Security on America Abroad. Elephants and other species are being poached at astonishing rates. A recent study showed that Africa lost 100,000 elephants between 2010 and 2012. That's about a quarter of their entire population in just three years. Terrorist groups and other criminal syndicates are benefiting from the sale of elephant tusks, rhino horn, and other wildlife products. But there would be no trade for these illicit materials if they weren't in such high demand. So you had all this, you know, these grand buildings, and then through the open doorways you could see stuffed tigers, tiger skins, leopard skins, huge ivory tusks, ivory carvings just openly on display for sale. Debbie Banks is with the Environmental Investigation Agency in the UK. She's describing what she saw during a recent undercover investigation of a strange small corner of northwestern Laos. It's very easy to forget you're in Laos when you pass through the entrance to the special economic zone. It feels like you've stepped into a part of China. Everything from the architecture, the street signs are all in Mandarin, the retailers, the shops, the hotel, the staff are all largely Chinese. Even the clocks are on Beijing time. The main stakeholder in that special economic zone is a company called the King's Romans Group. It's owned and run by a Chinese businessman. And the company operates a casino, a hotel, swimming pool, and golf course. In their online promotional video, they market this place as a holiday destination for the Chinese elite. A major attraction is the tiger bone wine and bear paw soup often served as a delicacy to the casino's big winners. Nearby, live bears and tigers are kept in small cages. And some of the retail shops offer all manner of illegal wildlife parts and products for sale. Banks says this is all done openly. A large part of the problem is the fact that it's in Laos. And this is a country that has not invested as much in professional law enforcement and criminal justice response to wildlife crime. And it's become very much a safe haven there for the criminals that are trafficking through Laos, ultimately into China or into Vietnam. There have been murmurings recently about increased crackdowns on illegal wildlife products in this special economic zone. And the Laotian government recently confiscated a small selection of illicit material, but then promptly burned the evidence. We think there is more that China could do to help investigate the company's uh, that are operating in the special economic zone if if any country has the resources to undertake you know covert operations and specialist investigations anti-money laundering investigations it would be china in recent years china has taken measures to curb the open market for ivory at home the government has banned the sale of ivory at auctions and internet companies including online giant alibaba have made an effort to bar illicit sales but how much of an impact this has had remains to be seen. Jocelyn Ford has more from Beijing. When it comes to buying ivory, China is number one. But that's become a source of national shame. Some of China's most admired celebrities are taking to the airwaves to stand up for elephants. 
take basketball giant Yao Ming. Yao Ming says he came to Africa to see this, elephants in the wild. But he says he also saw this, rotting corpses. Yao Ming urges his fellow countrymen to shun ivory. His plug ends with this jingle. If there's no trade, there's no harm. A lineup of who's who in China has piled on to the anti-ivory campaign, from piano virtuoso Lang Lang to billionaire internet entrepreneur Jack Ma. Organizing the groundswell is a host of international conservation groups, like Wild Aid and the International Fund for Animal Welfare, or IFA. IFA's Grace Ge Gabriel says elephants are victims of China's breakneck economic growth and some poorly thought-through policies. Ivory has always been coveted as a status symbol, but in the past, it was the purview of a privileged few. That changed during China's flush go-go years in the 2000s, when the economy was growing by over 10% a year. Seven years ago, at a time when elephant populations were recovering, China was granted a one-time-only sale, 62 tons of stockpiled ivory. That created a cover for the black market. Demand skyrocketed, and smuggling soared. The ivory price um, dramatically increased. Um, more people want to covet it. They felt it, it not only brings status, it has become an investment. The problem is, once the ivory enters the country, there is no foolproof system for distinguishing the legal from the illegal. In 2011, I was on the market in Beijing, and the seller, ivory seller, told me that this is white gold. Um, if you buy it today, the price will triple tomorrow. Meanwhile, conspicuous consumption was in vogue. Gift-giving or bribing with rare animal products was trendy. When official delegations from China arrived in Africa, the price of ivory would spike. Back home in China, ivory started appearing among loot when corrupt officials were busted, and some wealthy literally surrounded themselves with it. Private clubs that are frequented by government officials or powerful businessmen basically lined their wall, decorated their entire wall with ivory carvings. But at other gathering places for China's rich and influential, there's a different vibe. Artist Yuan Shikun has arranged for a dancer to perform at a gathering of a dozen top artists held at his private museum. The artists are there to promote China's bid for the 2022 Winter Olympics. But Yuan, who has two environment ambassador titles, is taking advantage of the occasion to make a plug to promote conservation. If the ecosystem thrives, human civilization will thrive. If the ecosystem collapses, so will human civilization. Yuan is also part of a high-profile advisory group to China's National Congress. Several years back, he started proposing laws and regulations to protect endangered species. We need to support the anti-corruption campaign. This is very important for protecting elephants. Along with Yao Ming and others, Yuan Shikun has been calling for a total government ban on all ivory sales. And this year, there is reason for optimism. 
In February, the government announced a symbolic one-year ban on imported ivory carvings. Then in the spring, government officials, foreign diplomats, and environmentalists gathered in Beijing for an ivory crush, the second to be held in this country. As workers in mint green uniforms tossed ivory onto a conveyor belt, the forestry minister said the 1,500 pounds would be pulverized. Minister Zhao Shuzong then made a pledge environmentalists have long been pushing for. Under the legal framework of CITES and domestic laws and regulations, we will strictly control ivory processing and trade. He said China would eventually end all ivory sales, though he didn't say when. Market watchers say there was no immediate impact on ivory prices, but the hope is this will send a message to speculators. It's time to give up on white gold. It will soon become worthless white dust. For America Abroad, this is Jocelyn Ford reporting from Beijing. Whether ivory sales in China end within a month or a year, it's clear that China's involvement is crucial. And if the Chinese government holds true to its promise, we really believe this will have a massive impact on the current dynamic of poaching and trafficking in elephants. Crawford Allen is senior director for Traffic, a joint program of the World Wildlife Fund and the IUCN. He says this anti-poaching message from the world's largest ivory market comes with its own complications. There is a risk that with this announcement that the traders are going to sort of have a sale-must-end-soon mentality where they actually then go and contact the organized crime groups to go and poach more elephant ivory to try and launder it through the legal system before that legal system's closed. The imminent end to the illegal wildlife trade could make wildlife products that much more valuable to terrorists and other criminal groups. So a number of law enforcement agencies and conservation groups are working to limit the appeal of ivory itself. That is a whole art and science in itself in trying to shift and shape consumer behaviors and consumer desires to try and turn this fashion trend around, if you like. One of the ways they've tried to do that is through public destruction of ivory caches. The U.S. crushed six tons of ivory in 2013, and in late June of this year, they made a public display of crushing another ton in front of thousands of onlookers in New York's Times Square. Jennifer Strong reports. The air is thick with gritty white dust, all that remains of hundreds of pieces of elephant ivory. The piles included carved tusks, decorations, and jewelry, ranging in size from little trinkets to large, ornate statues. All of it seized by federal agents, much of it tagged as evidence. Piece by piece, it rides up a long conveyor belt, then topples into a giant crusher. Antique ivory is legal in the United States, but these pieces are made from recently poached ivory, disguised to look old. It was dyed. They'd sort of stain the ivory to make it look older. Varun Vera is the lead analyst at C4 ADS. That's the Center for Advanced Defense Studies. They'd hidden it within terracotta pots. They'd transferred it through a series of intermediaries, went to Canada before entering the United States, um, and eventually found its way to this Philadelphia dealer. Very much designed, we're presuming, for the consumer market. Few penalties and skyrocketing prices make this crime increasingly attractive to terror groups and organized crime. For this reason, the U.S. government considers wildlife trafficking a national security issue. Last year, President Barack Obama's task force created a strategy to deal with it. His advisory council is chaired by Interior Secretary Sally Jewell. She spoke at the Times Square crush. We have 
transnational organized crime networks that see this as a low risk and a high profit market. We are part of the problem. We must also be part of the solution. A solution that includes USAID, the Department of Justice and Homeland Security, all working to better enforce the law and reduce the demand for these products by raising public awareness. But for now, the United States remains a major player in the global market for elephant ivory. Ellie Pepper is an expert on the U.S. ivory market at the NRDC, or Natural Resources Defense Council. So what a lot of people don't realize is the U.S. is actually one of the top ivory markets in the world. Pepper says a big part of the problem is U.S. ivory laws are confusing and hard to enforce. The U.S. has permitted a limited legal market for years. But since it's so hard to date ivory, it requires DNA testing or a bomb curve dating, which are expensive, not widely available processes. People sneak new ivory onto the shelves under the guise of old ivory. So that's why, even though the U.S. has banned most ivory for so long, it hasn't really mattered. It's just created this parallel illegal market. New York City has long been at the heart of this, but new, strict state bans in the region mean there's little ivory to see here. So I head to California. In San Francisco's Chinatown, there are blocks of stores that sell at least some ivory. California may soon pass a ban like New York's, and word seems to be getting out. The windows of shops specializing in ivory are filled with posters, advertising half off and going out of business sales. But for now, it's still the Wild West. Attorney Zach Smith joins me for some browsing. He's Pepper's colleague at NRDC. Some of the people working at the stores were absolutely upfront about the fact that they were selling elephant ivory that was illegal and that they would help you obtain documents to facilitate you being able to sell that ivory in New York, which right now has quite strict laws against the sale of ivory. So, I mean, I was amazed. I did not expect that. Ellie Pepper says the amount of illegal or new ivory that's on store shelves recently doubled, now making up roughly half of all ivory for sale here. What this means is that the amount of antique faking and the amount of pretending that ivory is old when it's actually new is just becoming more common. Bob Dreyer is the associate director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He says they've reached the same conclusion. We think that the current market provides cover for illegal ivory coming into the United States and permits poachers to profit from their crime. So we're looking for a way to take the United States out of that equation. But progress has been slow and hard won. Delaware Senator Chris Coons is one of several lawmakers addressing this issue on Capitol Hill. The United States still has a problem with illegal ivory, uh, whether it's gun owners or musicians or antique dealers. Um, they've raised concerns about a proposed Fish and Wildlife Service rule, uh, and they've pushed back fairly hard. Bipartisan bills before the House and Senate seek to increase the penalties for violating federal law. Right now, people who are convicted face small fines or just months in prison. If passed, the new measures would equate wildlife trafficking with other forms of that crime, such as drugs or weapons. Senator Coons applauds the Wildlife Trafficking Enforcement Act, which was put before the chamber earlier this year. It would create penalties of up to 20 years in prison or a half million dollars in fines.
Bob Dreyer says U.S. Fish and Wildlife is also working on a variety of new restrictions. We have been considering and are very, very close to issuing a proposed regulation that would substantially eliminate interstate trade in ivory in the United States. More than 20 states will also consider their own ivory bans this year. That's important because federal rules don't apply to trade within a state's borders. Places to watch include California and Connecticut. California because it has a very large ivory trade. Connecticut because tight restrictions in neighboring states could push New York City's illegal market across its border. For America Abroad, I'm Jennifer Strong. You're listening to Poaching and Terrorism, the race to protect wildlife and national security on America Abroad. Coming up, how law enforcement, conservation, and government organizations are teaming up to end the wildlife trade and protect national security. We're trying to create global networks among people who don't really trust each other and haven't really worked together. Visit our website for images, special features, and more. We're at americaabroad.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Poaching and Terrorism, the race to protect wildlife and national security on America Abroad. Once terrorists and other criminal syndicates got into the poaching game, protecting animals got a lot more difficult. Traditionally, wildlife trafficking has been seen as a conservation issue, a wildlife protection issue. Holly Drenginis is a policy analyst with the human rights group The Enough Project. She says now that poaching is acknowledged as a national security issue, law enforcement has to use more innovative approaches to shut it down. An armed group is in some ways similar to any business entity. In order to survive another day, in order to gain weapons and gain control over territory, these groups need money. Al-Shabaab, by some estimates, make over half a million dollars from ivory every month. And thinking through the toolbox of atrocities prevention, this is an innovative way, cutting off those income sources, it's an innovative way to start to weaken those groups and to send a message that illegal natural resource trading will not go on with impunity, that there are consequences, that assets will be frozen, that borders will be tightened to help move the power away from these armed groups who have really taken control over this region. The Enough Project has suggested imposing targeted sanctions against warring parties in South Sudan to help curb criminal behavior there. But it's going to take more than an act of Congress to make a dent. It's going to take a joint effort between conservation groups, counterterrorist groups, and more traditional law enforcement. It seems like an unlikely marriage, but it's been an incredible step forward for efforts both on the conservation level and for anti-atrocities efforts and counterterrorism. And really piecing all of that together and mapping out um, those power structures and those networks is critical to law enforcement and to ending the impunity for these crimes. But getting all these varied organizations to cooperate is challenging. This has been probably the most complicated project I have ever taken on in my life. That's Gretchen Peters with the Satow Project, which tracks illicit organizations through their finances. We're trying to create global networks among people who don't really understand each other and haven't really worked together. Not only is there no precedent for these organizations working together, but often they don't trust each other. There was a certain amount of 
concern in the conservation community about the militarization of the wildlife crime issue and a certain amount of mistrust that organizations like the Special Forces or the CIA were going to come in and take over conservation and take over national parks. I would argue, having met with some of those organizations, that they want nothing to do with this. They feel like they've got enough problems <laughs> between Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and other places. However, increasingly there's growing awareness in the U.S. national security community and in other countries as well that this is a very serious issue. One country that needs no reminder of the seriousness of this issue is Kenya. In 2013, al-Shabaab killed 67 people in an attack on Nairobi's upscale Westgate Mall. Targeting non-Muslims, opening fire and throwing grenades into crowds. And more recently, al-Shabaab militants stormed a northern Kenyan university, killing 148 people in the country's worst terrorist attack in more than a decade. The attack began before dawn. Witnesses say mass... As Kenya battles one force on its northern border, there's another serious security issue in a different part of the country. Reporting from the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro, Brianna Duggan follows the wildlife rangers who are on the front lines of Kenya's other war. One way to catch a poacher is by smell. Winding up a hill in southern Kenya, a tracker dog is guided by a scent past thorned bushes and through brush. On the other end of the leash is Ranger Mutinda Ndivo. He keeps his eyes on the red earth for footprints. Today, this is a training exercise, but the pair have caught many poachers or attempted poachers this way. Stay. No, 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 no. Ndivo knows the way poachers work because he was one, a notorious one at that, I'm told by my translator, Joseph. It was Ndivo's father who taught him how to poach using poisoned arrows. By 1989, he'd made a name for himself, killing up to seven elephants a day. But even if he was notorious, Ndivo was still at the bottom of the wildlife crime chain. He had no idea where the ivory went or who it funded. You know, all these buyers are big businessmen, and him is just there to get his money, so he doesn't follow up on what the other business that the buyer is carrying out. It was the law that ultimately stopped Ndivo. He was caught, imprisoned, had to sell off most of what he owned to pay a $100,000 fine. And ultimately, that was it. It was too expensive, too risky for him to poach. He got a job with Wildlife NGO Big Life for $200 a month. The Kenyan government is hoping these same economic forces will prevent others from poaching. Last year, they put into effect a strict Wildlife Act it imposes life sentences or fines of up to $200,000 for poaching elephants or other wildlife. The law is just one of the tools being used to combat poaching. The Kenyan government increased funding to the Wildlife Service. With the help of international donors, it's established a new forensic lab to test wildlife products to aid in prosecution. Also key has been the government's openness to work with NGOs, groups like Big Life. Yeah, we are happy with the Wildlife Act. Bernard Kipto works with Big Life to monitor wildlife crime and make sure incidents are followed up in court. And that's an essential question here surrounding the Wildlife Act. Enforcement. Big Life employs people just to keep tabs on these cases, and a police force often criticized for corruption. You know, we have to be there because we doubt if these people will actually be brought before the, the courts. When cases do go through the system, however, 
the results are striking. He points to a whiteboard with past cases of elephant poaching. On 27 July 2011, somebody was arrested for sparing an elephant at Holpakai. And when he was taken to the courts, he was fined 30,000 and released. That's about 300 U.S. dollars. In a similar case last year, after the bill was passed, a man was charged with seven years in prison. Now, that may help deter smaller-level poachers, but for the sophisticated poachers, those more likely to be connected to large criminal groups... Their insurance says their connections, their income is so large that it would probably take some time to really try to squeeze these guys to, you know, to, to make this law a deterrent. Johan Bergenes studies transnational security with the Stimson Center and works extensively with Kenyan anti-poaching initiatives. He says that while it may still be too early to know the real effect of the wildlife bill, it's a big step in African conservation. I would look at this bill as a, you know, as one of the strongest manifestations that this is no longer sort of a Western-led big NGOs in Washington, Brussels, Stockholm, you know, hugging elephants and pictures in the subways, uh, making money off of African elephants looking cute. I would look at it as a way where, you know, Africans are taking ownership of their economic assets. Africans are, are seeing the impact of wildlife crime and what it does to the economies, what it does to the security, what it does to the development. Here around Amboseli National Park, local communities are active in this fight. Big Life Rangers have received a call. An elephant has trampled a garden. You will see the elephant tracks. This is a male. These rangers are all locals, and they know it's not easy living alongside this wildlife. The landowner stands with arms crossed, tears in her eyes. She says this garden is the only way she can afford to pay for her three kids' education. And here's where an NGO, like Big Life, makes the difference. Rangers provide her with flares to scare away any future wildlife and will compensate her if any animals are killed. Where before there may have been a retaliatory poaching of the elephant, now these rangers have won over a community member. This woman will likely become part of Big Life's informer network, people who notify rangers of any suspicious activity. And a community that values wildlife is key. Tourism, mostly from wildlife, is huge here. It makes up about 12% of Kenya's economy. Security expert Johan Bergenas says that for the economic security of the country, Kenya needs to keep these animals alive and their bounty out of the wrong hands. Over the next 15, 20 years, as they are transitioning their economies into a more industrialized economy, they cannot afford to have uh, sectors of their society squashed by transnational criminals and not being able to make that transition uh, into a more developed country. After a day's work, the rangers go back to their base and make a meal of maize flour mash and greens. They spend 23 days out of the month deployed here. For Mwimo Yambat, who has five kids and a wife at home, wildlife, more than anything, means money. You know that when you look after wildlife, we get a sponsorship because of wildlife. And so we get a profit because of wildlife. So I'm happy 
I am happy to uh, to work even a very hard job because of we benefit through the wildlife. Here along Kenya's other front line, it comes down to economic incentives. For the wildlife to thrive, their protectors have to believe they're more beneficial alive than they are dead. For America Abroad, I'm Brianna Duggan. While rangers in Kenya fend off poachers, back in the U.S., government agencies are trying to figure out a solution on their end before it's too late. It keeps me up at night. I've been thinking about this and doing this sort of thing for 35 years. The situation is more than urgent in many places. It's dire. Richard Ruggiero is chief of the Division of International Conservation at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He works right at the nexus of government and conservation. He says with the advanced technology available to poachers and the advanced networks available to their funders, the task of ending the wildlife trade is more difficult now, but he says the numbers don't tell the whole story. You know, these aren't just dots on a piece of paper or zeros and ones in a computer. These are the lives of extremely sentient, intelligent, feeling social animals who suffer emotionally and socially from the kinds of disturbance that poaching does. These animals are conscious of their own mortality. As depressing as things have been, he's also been encouraged by recent government action. Two years ago, President Obama issued an executive order which coordinated various government agencies and allowed them to work more efficiently together. So despite all the dire warnings, Ruggiero feels things have finally begun moving in the right direction. We all can be very critical, and rightly so, of government's ability to do various things of personal importance, or in this case of global importance. But I am proud of what we're doing, and I think it's effective. We know what to do. We just need to do more of it and faster. Before Africa's quickly disappearing elephants and rhinos are gone for good. You've been listening to Poaching and Terrorism, the Race to Protect Wildlife and National Security on America Abroad. This hour was written and edited by Mia Lobel and produced by Rob Sachs with additional production help from Flan Williams. Special thanks to Roxanne Scott, Emily Johnson, and Davis Lamb. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the America Abroad or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website at pri.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI, Public Radio International.